Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. If you guys want to take out your Bibles, or if you don't have one, there should be one in the seat pockets close to you. Acts chapter 17, as we continue our journey through the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Now last week, you might recall as you're making your way that direction, that we began the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul with him really deciding where exactly he was going to go. We looked at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, where uh, by the pen of Solomon, the Lord says that man plans his, but God directs his steps. And so we see Paul has a, a very good plan for his second missionary journey. He intends to go into Asia Minor, and there he's going to spread the gospel. Uh, the issue with that is uh, God was going to redirect his steps. And so we saw that the Apostle Paul didn't get to go into Asia Minor, but instead was redirected and found himself in Macedonia, far, far away from where he intended to go. I know some of you can probably understand or relate to that. Paul didn't end up where he wanted to, and yet by God's grace, what we see when he arrived in Macedonia, he begins to teach the Bible and explain things through the Old Testament, and he meets a lady named Lydia, who is from the town of Thyatira, which is located right smack in the middle of Asia Minor. And so God actually directs Paul to Macedonia so that the word could go to Asia, but he just set a path to make that happen. And so we uh, finished our time last week in Philippi. They're located in Macedonia with a tremendous uh, revival, a group coming to know Christ. They're in Philippi. A small church is planted. Uh, they come together. And at this point, uh, Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke as well as the Apostle Paul, uh, they head out, and that's where we find ourselves in chapter 17, as they're going to make their way towards uh, Thessalonica. And so we see in verse 1 of chapter 17, Now when they had passed through Hippolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And so what we find is Paul's journeying now from uh, Philippi. He's making his way to uh, Thessalonica, but he passes two smaller towns. Now, that seems like a bit of flyover territory, like maybe there's nothing really to glean from that verse. But I think it's interesting that Paul didn't plant a church in every single town that he came across. But instead, what he did was he intentionally went to towns that were of a larger population, more, more densely populated, so the word could get to more people with the hopes that then they could take and go plant churches in these smaller communities. So what in the world, uh, why would I share that with you right now? Well, I should say that oftentimes, while we're waiting on the Lord's direction, he also uses the practical things in our life to make the spiritual things happen. That he gave us a brain, he gave us the ability to reason, and if you want the word of God to go out in greater numbers, going to the more populated areas makes complete and total sense. So God's direction wasn't for Paul to just sit and wait for another vision from the Lord. And I think oftentimes when we wonder, what would you have us do in this season, Lord? That we can think it looks like we've got our legs crossed and we're meditating, we're contemplating our navel, something like that. This must be what it looks like to wait on the Lord to speak. And yet for Paul, he reasoned that it goes, well, the Lord is clearly directing us to this region of Macedonia. And the next largest town is Thessalonica. So it only stands to reason that we should head that direction. And I share that again to say that so many times God directs us in a way so that he can use the practical things in our life. Now an Old Testament example of this, I know you guys love it when I go to Exodus, but going to Exodus 
chapter 4, this is precisely what happened for Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, God comes to him and speaks to him very powerfully through a burning bush. It's never happened to me where God talked to me through a plant. But for Moses, this is what happened. And he told Moses clearly to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. The nation of Israel was suffering under harsh persecution. And God says, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let these two million Jewish slaves go. I want them freed and I want it done now. And, and what does Moses say at this direction? How, how am I going to go do that? Like, why would they ever listen to me? And so God's response to him was, uh, Mo, what's in your hand? And Moses responds, a staff. And God says, okay, throw it down on the ground. Moses throws it on the ground. The staff turns to a snake. Then God says, all right, Mo, I want you to pick the staff back up. Pick the snake up. Now, this takes a little bit of faith, obviously. But Moses reaches down. He grabs the staff. He grabs this. It turns back into a staff. Now, why in the world would I share that? Look at what God said to Moses. What is in your hand? The practical thing that you have in your hand. You're a shepherd. You're tending to sheep. You've got this staff in your hand, and I'm telling you that I am now giving you authority to go in there by my name and speak to Pharaoh. So the question is, as we began, as we begin this morning, is what has God put under your authority? That many of you would have this very same question. I ask this often, God, what would you have me do? What would you have me to do in this spot? And he's saying, I'm giving you authority in this place. Authority in your workplace, in your school, in your family. Use what's in your hand. Use the tools that I've already given you in order to touch people spiritually. And so uh, God gives this authority to Moses. And we see the same thing happening for Paul. He's been given authority to go out on this journey. Now, that's fantastic, preacher. We got this authority. What do we do with it? So glad you asked. Verse 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths, Reason with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. And so, with this authority, what does Paul do? He goes into Thessalonica and he reasons with the people there in the synagogue. This was his typical MO, by the way. He would go into a new city, and if they had a synagogue, he would open up their Old Testament scriptures, which is, by the way, the same thing we hold in our hands. Go from Matthew to the left. That's what they had. It was on a long scroll, not bound in a book. Thank you, Mr. Gutenberg, for that. But they had scrolls they would open and read from. And so Paul went into their synagogues where they already had the oracles of scripture, and he began to reason with them. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. This is what the Lord says through the pen of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus is born. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is what the Lord is saying. We have a reasonable faith. It's not unreasonable. It's not wild and crazy. Does it take some faith to believe that a virgin could give birth? Absolutely, and yet it's, it's natural as well. What we also know is that 
by our faith, we know that we have a sin problem. We know something broken, and there must be a fill-in. There must be a Savior to actually come into those situations and heal us. But we have a very reasonable faith. Unlike when I spent some time in Israel, I came across this group known as the Druze people. They're in the Middle East. They live in Israel, but they're more of a, a nomadic people. And you can easily spot the Druze people by the pants they wear. These are called haram pants. Now, they look a little bit like something MC Hammer would wear on the Can't Touch This video. So or a little bit like Zubaz, if anybody's old enough to Okay, I'm probably at the remember Zubaz. But needless to say, they look, like, they look like these pants. And what they believe is that the Messiah would come as a Savior. Okay, fantastic. They believe that. They believe, though, that the Messiah would come uh, not to a woman, but to a man. And so the Messiah was going to come down and bless some man and be born into a man. And so for the Druze men, what they do is they wear these pants called the Haram pants because when Messiah comes upon them, he wouldn't come as a, uh, at just at the time of conception, but as a nine-month-old getting ready to pop out. So they didn't want to be embarrassed by being blessed by the Lord and then dropping the Lord. And so they wear these pants, literally, in case God just sends the Messiah down, that they wouldn't accidentally drop the Messiah on the ground. Now, because you are, are very understanding people, you know that uh, anatomically speaking, this is very difficult for a man to give birth. Uh, and so uh, the second piece of this is, if they were so blessed to have the Messiah uh, given to them, uh, they would die. They would have to give their life for the Messiah. Now you see the differences, right? Messiah comes so he can give his life for us, not so that we may give our life for him. And so we have a very reasonable faith, unlike many of these faiths in the world where you have to just scratch your head and go, what in the world? Like haram pants? But what we all know is that we have a sin problem. We have this dreaded uh, disease and no way to fix it. And so what Paul is explaining to them is that we need a Savior. We're all looking for a Christ, but this Christ is one who's already come to you. This is Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. And as he's reasoning with these rabbis, one of the issues the rabbis had in the Old Testament and continue to have is there are discrepancies in the Scriptures for both Messiah is presented as a king and the Lord and the Son of God, but Messiah is also presented as a suffering servant throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And so what the rabbis did to cover up for this uh, little issue in their text is they created uh, two messiahs in Judaism. They would teach that Messiah would actually be two different people, the first of which would be Messiah ben David, Messiah the son of David. And this Messiah would be a powerful and a king and and. In texts like Psalm 2 and Isaiah 9 and Psalm 19, and these were, this was the Messiah they were excited about, right? We want him to come and make our enemies our footstool. Who doesn't get excited about our enemies being our footstool, right? Yes, that's my Messiah. And so they would associate themselves with Messiah ben David, but they still couldn't reason through the text of him having to suffer at the same time. And so they created another Messiah, Messiah ben Joseph is what they referred to him as. Now, if you remember the story of Joseph, he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel. But this uh, Joseph was the most beloved of his father, but his brothers didn't take too kindly of that. And so they uh, pretended that he was dead, and then they sold him to Egypt. 
to Midian slave traders, never to hopefully see him again. And so they actually sold out their own brother, only for years later them to be having a great famine in the land. They were uh, being harshly persecuted by the environment, and so they had to come to Egypt in order to purchase grain. And when they arrive in Egypt, they go to the house of Pharaoh, and they go to this second in command, the one that's seated at the right hand of the king, and they have to pace. But on this coming before uh, Joseph, they did not recognize him at their first coming. They did not instead recognize him until the second time they came. And it was there that he showed himself at the right hand of the king. And so then you begin to draw the parallels even in their own flawed teachings. And interestingly enough, as Jesus comes into the world, what do they refer to him as by his messianic title, Son of David, right? They, they call out to Jesus, Jesus, Son of David, heal me. But then what do we know from Matthew's account? His birth was, he was actually the stepson of Joseph. He was both Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph. You see, even their own teachings, Jesus fulfilled. What Paul would no doubt walk through as well is, if you turn into your Psalms in Psalm 16, it's clear that the Messiah would not see corruption. Even though he is buried, he would not stay there. And so he unfolds, he unveils their own text showing that Jesus is the Messiah, which is precisely why we say the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. It's not an alternative text. It's merely God actually unveiling what was already there in the Testament. But I think it's important to point out what Paul used in order to walk this through with them. He used the Word of God. Always it's important for us to go back to the Word, to stay rooted and grounded in the Word of God, in the Word of God excuse me, as we reason with people. Now then, verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so they could not find Paul, these Jews in the synagogue that were offended by him, and they go to the house of Jason where they think he's staying, and they cry out to send Paul out, but he's not there. And so their claim, the, the thing that they have against the apostle Paul and the rest of his disciples there is that these men who seek the world upside down have come here. What a fantastic claim to have made against you, wouldn't it? That we would be a people who seek to turn the world upside down. Imagine that. If, if we just sought to turn Heritage Woods upside down, or just Eastern Illinois University upside down, or the city of Charleston or Coles County, what a tremendous claim to say these men seek to turn the world upside down. But you see, there's a flaw in that too because they weren't seeking to turn the world upside down. They were seeking to turn the world right side up. 
when we look at what's taking place, it's not hard for us. We don't have to take a really far stretch of the imagination to see that the world is completely upside down. Exactly the way Paul addresses it in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, where he says essentially that, the, that good will be called bad and bad will be called good. That's precisely what we see taking place. That good things are called bad and bad things are called good. And what Paul is seeking to do and what we should seek to do is actually turn the world back right side up to see good for what it is and to see bad for what it is and not be afraid to make that as a statement. Now then, verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the And these were more fair-minded than those of Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. And so they leave Thessalonica, and then they go to this next town called Berea. And what we're told there is that these were more fair-minded, or if you look at the old King James Version, that these in Berea were more honorable than those of Thessalonica. And you have to wonder why. Why would uh, Luke write that? Why would God record that in Scripture, that these people of Berea, what makes them so honorable? Well, the key to that is there in verse 11. These were more fair-minded that in they received the word, the teaching of Paul, with all readiness and searched the scriptures out daily to find out whether these things are so. I would always encourage you guys to be Bereans. Be Bereans in anything that I share or gets taught here. Go back to the scriptures and see if these things are so. God doesn't have a single issue with us going back and looking through the text, asking questions, hey, I didn't quite see it that way, or perhaps this is another way to look at it or consider it. And so this is actually the sign of a healthy church. One of the reasons why I encourage you guys, and I'm so encouraged to see you guys engaged, by the way. I'm thankful to get to see that because this is a sign of a church that wants to learn the scriptures, that wants to go through them. And, and, and by the way, none of you are sleeping while I teach, so I appreciate that. Not that uh, that will slow me down whatsoever. In fact, the very first time uh, that I got to teach the scripture was at the Farmington Manor Nursing Home in Farmington, Missouri. So if any of you think that you know how to sleep through a message, you got nothing on those folks right there, especially when you get the opportunity to teach after lunch and after meds are given out. So you're not going to slow me down. But nevertheless, you guys do a wonderful job of being engaged, and that's a sign of a healthy church because we should be going into Scripture and not saying, hey, what do you think or what do you think? We should be going to Scriptures to go, hey, what does God think? Ultimately, that's what matters. What does God have to say about this situation? And that's where faith really comes from. Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's where faith is derived in the text. Now then, verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. 
And so Paul was ultimately the one they were upset with when these Jews from Thessalonica come down and they realize they're teaching in Berea about 30 miles away. And so Paul leaves, but he leaves Silas and Timothy there to continue to teach to them. Now then, verse 15. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. And so Paul leaves from Berea, and now he heads to Athens, which uh, is at that time in the world the intellectual capital of the world, of the great philosophers, uh, Plato, Socrates, all from Athens. And so they prided themselves on being a place of much education and higher learning. And this is where Paul ends up. They were also known for tremendous architecture, like the Parthenon, which is still to this day you can go and witness, and many regard it as the most perfect architectural design ever, perfect in every single corner. I never built a building that was probably actually square. So this is bound to be better than anything I did. But the, the Parthenon is something they were known for. Now then, verse 16 now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked or troubled within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. You see, I'm known for something else as well, a tremendous amount of idolatry. They were the uh, idolatry capital of the world as well. And what you find, and this is true throughout any culture, any place you go, and Solomon said it in Ecclesiastes 3.11, Ultimately, man is incurably worshipful. We have eternity placed in our hearts. We have a desire to worship. The issue is, what will we worship? Because if we'll not uh, worship God, the true and living God, really what we end up worshiping is us, <laughs> ourselves. Old number one, my favorite, right? We end up worshiping ourselves. And when Paul's there in Athens, he's grieved because what he sees are not just a few idols, but historically speaking, the range is anywhere between 2,000 and 30,000 idols are what existed in Athens at that time. They had idols for literally everything. If you uh, could imagine it, whatever you wanted to worship, you could find it there in Athens. If you were after power and you wanted command and control, go to the temple of Zeus. You'll be able to sacrifice to Zeus right there. If you're after pleasure and lust, the temple of Aphrodite with her uh, temple prostitutes are there. You can experience all you want in terms of pleasure from Aphrodite. If uh, drugs or alcohol, pharmakia is what it's called in the Greek or your thing, there's the temple of Bacchus there. You can go and worship that as well. Everything you could want to worship was all there uh, in Athens. If you didn't like your little G-God, just go find another one. Boy, sounds a lot like church at times too, doesn't it? Didn't really like what they said that week. I think I'll just go on down the street. It happens. It happens. Now, verse 17. Therefore, he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. What did Paul do? He's grieved. He's heartbroken. He's looking around. He's seeing people that are totally into every conceivable idol, all about themselves. They're given over to it. What he did was he went out and reasoned with them. He went to their synagogues, and he spoke. He went into the marketplace, down to the Greek mart. 
He's down there. He's speaking to them in the checkout line. Wherever he could go, he reasoned with them. He went right to where they lived, and he simply spoke to them. You see, when we reason with someone, it's not telling someone uh, what to think. It's telling them how to think. I don't want to be in a spot where I'm telling people what to think. You should think this. You should think that. Instead, this is how you should think about it, to think about things critically, going back to the Bereans to dig through the Word of God, see what he has to say about things. So this is what Paul is doing. He's reasoning with the people. Now, thinking about this story this week, I remembered back in the Old Testament, and one of my favorite guys in the Old Testament was the prophet Elisha. Probably lots of you guys love Elijah. We get all hung up and excited about Elijah, especially when he calls down fire on people. Always wanted to call down fire on people, but I'm not righteous enough. I'd end up burning somebody up on accident. So we all love Elijah, but Elisha was actually his protege. He was his follow-up. He actually received a double blessing of uh, Elijah's spirit. And so uh, one of the things I love about Elisha is uh, he was apparently a man with no hair. And so uh, as my hair gets thinner and thinner, I can relate more and more to Elisha. And he was being made fun of one day by these young people, calling him, hey, baldy, hey, baldy. And so Elisha pronounces a curse on him, and a pack of she-bears come out of the woods and maul these young people. So I'm like, man, if I can't call down fire, if I could call out a pack of she-bears to come attack people, give me a hard time, pretty awesome. So I like Elisha. But that's not the story at all today. The story I was thinking of was in Second Kings chapter 4, verse 38 through 41. Elisha had a school of ministry going on there, a group of prophets he was in Second Kings. And as he's training these guys up, and they're all gathered there together out in the wilderness, they do what guys do, and that is, well, we get hungry, and it's time to eat. Now, unfortunately for them, as they were going out deciding how to cook their, their stew and make their meal, uh, they didn't have Jamie Himes there to cook for them. And so these guys were apparently uh, terrible cooks because they just went out and gathered up any old garbage they could find, and they throw it into a pot, and they begin to cook it. And so they cook this stew up there in the school of uh, ministry that they're having with Elisha. And in verse 40, as they've got this stew cooking, uh, it says, then they, were, then they served it to the men to eat. And now it happened, as they were eating the stew, that they cried out and said, Man of God, there's death in this pot. And they could not eat it. I mean, this was awful. They cried out, this is garbage. There was even poison in it. This is going to make us sick. This is so bad. And so they cry out to Elisha, can you do anything about our dinner? Verse 41, and so he said, then bring in some flour. And he put it in the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. And so in looking at this situation, Elisha sees there's this pot of stew, and I think it's fascinating. He doesn't say, dump it out, boys. You're going to have to start again. You're going to have to just begin it all over again. He also doesn't say, get out the tweezers and pick out every bit of poison that you put into that pot one at a time. Instead, what he says is, go get some flour, or in the Hebrew, some meal, or it could be translated grain. And you probably remember as we've gone through the Word of God, there are, there are constants in the Bible. One of them is anytime grain is mentioned, it's a type or a picture of the Word of God. Think about Jesus sharing the parable of the sower. What's he say? The parable goes out in the field to sow, and he casts off seeds. Some fall on the 
road, some fall on the stony ground, some on the thorny ground, some in good soil. But the key to that is he's throwing out the seed, the word of God. What does Elisha say in this story? I want you to take the meal, the grain, and I want you to pour it into the pot. Pour it into the pot until there is no more poison. I think as we look at our lives, we can be a lot like these men. Lord, there is nothing good in me. It is poison in my life. There is nothing of any value, of any worth at all in me. And what I pick up from this story, it's similar to what Paul is teaching to these Greeks. He's pouring the meal in. He's pouring the word of God in. If you want to take care of the poison in your life, pour in the meal. So many times, God isn't wanting to just throw us away or cast us off or dump everything out. I was told by my pastor years ago that what you'll find is that as you let God minister to you, the things that used to get you in trouble, he'll now use to his glory. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? He'll take all those things, the, the quick wit, the sarcasm, the sense of humor, the incredible looks. Okay, see if anybody's awake. He'll take all those things and he'll actually use those for his good and his glory. God's not looking to dump out the pot. And for us, what I also take from this is he's not looking for us to pick out the poison in the lives of others. I can want to do that too. When I see people with things all jacked up in their life, I'm like, man, I, I want to speak into their life. They're going to have to dump that pot out. Or I'm going to get the tweezers out and just start picking poison and picking poison, and you're going to exhaust yourself doing that. But instead, I'd encourage you to do what Paul did, just dump in the word. Take the meal of the scripture and just pour it into people's lives. Just speak to them in that way. And what you'll find is some pretty fantastic stew can be made in that way. Now, continuing on in verse 18, as Paul is addressing them, they reply, or, but he said, as the Lord, excuse me, that's in Second Kings, as the Lord lives. Now we're back to Acts 17, verse 18. Then Circurian and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? I love that response. This babbler, what's he talking about? Others said, he seems to be the proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And so we see Paul is approached by both the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. And what's interesting about these two groups is they are on complete polar opposites. The Epicurean philosophers were all about uh, pleasure. They thought that man's entire use was whatever pleasure you can get out of this life, you better get it. These were the ones in the corner when you go to the restaurant. They're over there like the let it rip tater chip crowd, just whoa, letting it all hang out. Eat, drink, and be merry. But then on the other side, you've got the Stoics. The Stoics believed that all man had to offer was virtue, and no emotion should ever be shared for any reason. They were straight-laced, and they hated the Epicureans. They did not like that crowd whatsoever. But interestingly enough, what we see is these two groups come together. And you know, the one thing they could agree on was they didn't like Jesus. <laughs> we, don't, we don't like him. Why is that? I believe it's because he was offensive to both of them. That in uh, his perfection, he is actually uh, loving, which is ultimately what the Epicureans started off as, as a philosophy. Is things were about love. But at some point, that love turned into hypocrisy. They couldn't hold anybody or anything or themselves accountable. 
but he is also the perfect combination of truth. But he is not brutal the way the Stoics were. And that's why we will say that love without truth is hypocrisy and truth without love is brutality. But Jesus was the perfect combination of both of those and what we're called to be as well. But also offensive to both groups in this setting. Now, verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus or Mars Hill, saying, May we know this new doctrine. Is, may we know what this new doctrine is from which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know them. We don't want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. And so they would gather at Mars Hill, and in this spot, the philosophers and all these highly educated people, they would just share things and endlessly debate all the different things in both religion and education. Uh, but I thought this was kind of funny as I was studying this week. One of the things they believed were that uh, religion and education are inseparable. Isn't that fascinating when we're told by our uh, higher-ups that there should be a separation between church and state. They believed that these things were incurably inseparable. They could not be brought apart. But they also loved new things. They loved to continually learn something new and the next new thing and hear the next new thing. And man, it's just exhausting to think about. <laughs> the next new and the next new. And it makes me so thankful for Hebrews 13.8 uh, says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because, man, it'd be exhausting with the next new thing and the next new thing. And it seems like the world is continually throwing us all those things. It doesn't mean that we don't get new revelation as Jesus opens himself to us. But I'm so thankful that he is rock solid. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And so Paul stands up to present to them and acknowledges their religion or their religious tendencies. Now, it may throw some of you off, but the word religion just means to relink or reconnect. So what Paul's saying is, I perceive that you have in you this deep desire to reconnect. You know something is broken. You know something is missing something that each of us have had to deal with. And so is everybody you come into contact with. We know something is off in life. And so Paul addresses that. I see that you have a desire to reconnect or relink. In verse 23, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an all this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. Now imagine this. Athens was so overtaken with idols. They had an idol to literally everything, but they didn't want to accidentally offend some god. Like, we might have left somebody out, so we'll make an altar to the unknown god. Just the god that we didn't think of, that we didn't come up with. We'll even make a god that says to the unknown god. But this gives Paul his in with these philosophers. He doesn't start off by insulting them. He begins by saying, look, I can see you're very religious. You're looking for something. You're looking to relink in some way. You even have an altar to the unknown God. That's the one I want to talk to you about, the one that you do not know. And so he 
is going to go on and explain who this God is. He's going to tell them and explain, even through their own cultural references, how they can relink to the God that they have been missing out on. And the message that he's going to go into, many Bible scholars and theologians and seminaries will teach this as the perfect message. And so I want to highlight that, that this is what people way smarter than me think this is the perfect way to address society and culture and to go through a message that Paul does here on the Oropagus. He begins in verse 24. He says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And so he begins by saying, God is creator. He doesn't dwell in your temples made by hands. Let me explain to you his greatness. He is way greater than you can imagine. He goes on in verse 25 to say, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since life to all, breath and all things, and he has made from one blood, excuse me, he has made all things. And so he goes on to say in verse 25 that God is provider. He is both creator and he is provider. And I'm going to tell you now about his goodness. He's provided for you every step of the way. Now, verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So he begins by saying God is creator. Now he goes to God is a provider. And next he hits on God is ruler. I'm going to share with you about his governance. This is how he's going to establish his kingdom. We came from one blood, which I think is interesting, that we all came from one single blood, and yet he has divided all the nations. He has created diversity from unity, which is precisely what the body of Christ should look like, by the way. We are all joined together through the blood of Christ, one blood, and yet from many different nations, that in Jesus there is true unity inside of being diverse. Now, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. So he, his next point is God is creator, God is ruler, God is uh, provider, God is also our Father. I'm going to speak to you about His glory, more glorious than any silver or gold or anything that your hands or your temples could ever create. He even connects with them through their own culture, using their own poets to try to make a connection point. Paul is hitting on all cylinders now on Mars Hill. He concludes here in verse 30 and 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this, by, of this to all by raising him from the dead. His final point, after sharing with him that God is creator, 
He is provider. He is ruler. He is our father. Is that God our savior? Let me speak of his grace. You want to know what grace is? Grace is not grace is getting what we do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. What Paul is saying is you do not deserve to have eternal life. And yet because of him, you can have it through the resurrection. God has overlooked your ignorance. That is gracious right there. To give us new life. So here the Apostle Paul has laid it all out there. He's given this amazing message to them. The question is, how did they respond? Verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so two different groups, the first of which they mocked him. They took what Paul said and they laughed right in his face. By the way, if you share your faith, you will many times get mocked. The good news is, if you look throughout Scripture, you're in fantastic company. I mean, look at Noah, for example. He shared with people the judgment of God that was coming. It was coming quickly to them. Yet what did they do? They mocked him. They said, Noah, you are all wet. But then what happens? They missed the boat, right? That's a joke, by the way. That was Bible humor. It's okay to laugh. Even nervous laughter, I'll take it. That was all, man. All right. So you're in good company, just like Noah. But for others, for others, their answer was, we want to hear more about this later. Their response was to delay. I want to hear more about this message, but not today. I want to encourage you to be very careful about that as a response. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.2 is that today is the day of salvation. His exact words are, behold, now is the day of salvation. Tomorrow has no guarantee to it. If, if ever there was a time on the earth, we should know that, right? That, that there is not a promise for tomorrow. And so today is a day of salvation. These guys missed the boat because they did not believe right then and there. They waited. They delayed. I'm going to put this thing off. I'm going to give this more time. We'll hear back from you again tomorrow. Now, there were some in verse 33 that did believe. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, and among them was Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so there were some that believed. This is the result of the seemingly perfect message of the Apostle Paul. So I ask you, do you feel like this is the perfect message? I think some of the proof is in the fact that there was no church planted by Paul in Athens. He did not plant a church there. He instead goes on down the road, is what we're told at the beginning of chapter 18. Don't worry, I'm not going to go all the way through chapter 18. But after these things, in verse 1, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And if you look at what happened in Corinth, I'm going to quickly go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. After Paul has just shared this amazing message where he touched on cultural relevance, 
He tried to hit everything at a high level, speaking philosophically, speaking in, in wisdom and in truth and trying to share God's word with these elite. He says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, speaking of his entry into Corinth, or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trouble. And in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, there's something that was missing from the supposed perfect message of Paul there in Athens. Not a single mention of Jesus. Did you note that? Not a single mention of the cross or of the crucifixion. And there was no great revival in Athens. And when he gets to Corinth, I believe, uh, brokenhearted about the perfect message, he tells that group there in Corinth, I am no longer going to speak from the wisdom of man, but I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified. From now on, this is what my messages are going to center around. And it doesn't mean, by the way, that cultural relevance isn't great. We should, I should strive to be relevant culturally, for sure, to connect, to sing some bad 80s classic rock tunes every now and again. You know, there's some connection. There's tie-in to it, but, but there should always have a presentation of the cross. It's vital. It is so impactful. Because what you find is through the cross is that man's greatest need, forgiveness, is God's greatest deed. The deed, the work that Jesus did is vital for people to understand. I must, when I'm presented with this, come to grips with my sin. It nailed him there. It's, it's brutal and it's bloody and I think lots of times we shy away. We don't want to speak of the cross and the violence surrounding it. And it's not just because of the blood. It's because my sin did that. It's because of how it made me feel. And so we, we tend to shy away. And yet it's also a presentation of his amazing and perfect love for each of us. What Jesus says by his own words in John chapter 12, verse 32, is this. That if I am lifted up from the earth... I will draw all peoples to myself. That by being high and lifted up, with that presentation of him there giving his life for us, that people are drawn to that. To some it is offensive because their sin is what they're facing. But to others, the realization of his love, of the perfect work of Jesus, it is powerful. When it's shared that there is power in his name, I have encouraged you before, I'll encourage you again. Share the name of Jesus with the people around you. Don't shy away from that. If you don't believe there's power in it, just drop it in the middle of a conversation and watch people's heads turn. You can talk about God, you can talk about spirituality, you can say all kinds of things about religion, but if you mention the name of Jesus, it changes the tone of the conversation. And the cross, that's transformational. 
when you realize the work that he did and the work he wants to do in you, it transforms people. So how can we go about sharing the name of Jesus and his transformative power? By sharing our testimony. What has he done in your life? Share that with people. That's the piece that really gets folks. That's the thing that really connects. We don't have to be Rhodes Scholars. We don't have to go to seminaries. You don't have to have the perfect message all written down. What you need is his story in your life. That's the transformative power of the cross. So Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the way that it works in our lives. We thank you, Father, for the way you transform us right out. I thank you, Father, that you didn't take the, the bucket of stew and just dump it out. And by all arguments and rights, you should have. Because I know what I had created was a mess of poison and deception and death. There was death in that pot, Lord. But the grain of the word of God changes things. Lord, please help us be able to speak that into the lives of others around us. And Lord, please pour it into our lives. How much meal does it take? There's no measurement given because I think there's no amount that is too much. Lord, let it be poured into us. Father, thank you for the way you move and you work in our lives. Thank you for the places you put us, the authority you've given to us, the rod you've put in our hands to be able to act in the lives of the people around us. Please give us courage like you did for Moses to be able to go and to be able to just share what you're up to in our lives. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Man, we couldn't, we, we would be of all men most pitiable without him. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you please stand? Oh, 
away the tears from broken dreams and wasted years until the past to disappear. Oh, let me tell you about my Jesus and all the wrong turns that you were going on to. If you could, who could work it all for you? Good. Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can say. You let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free. And the good news is that I know that he can do for you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let my Jesus change your life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen, amen, oh, oh, oh. hallelujah, 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 let my Jesus change your life. Who would take us to Calvary? Pay the price for all my guilty. Who would care that much about me? Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. He ain't no sinner he can say. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Oh, love strong and the grace is free. The good news is that I know that he can do for you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let my Jesus change your life. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Amen. says amen thank you guys that's Michaela's first time singing right there you guys can appreciate that <laughs> uh, God bless you guys I hope you have an awesome week uh, let me encourage you as the week goes on uh, to share to pour uh, into others and to also be poured into uh, by others as well so if you guys need prayer for any reason whatsoever